This is the Creative Life Show, celebrating being highly creative in a less creative world. I'm Joanna Peters, coach and mentor to professional creatives and creative professionals, and I talk to other creatives, innovators and thinkers about how we create, face down our critics, stay on track, get noticed and paid, and do the work we want to do. And I'm sharing the progress of my own book, all about creative people and how we thrive. Hello and welcome. So it's the beginning of April. How did that happen? We've had a much longer gap than I'd anticipated on the Creative Life Show. So it's particularly good to be back. Now, one of the projects I've been working on since I was last here is about creative happiness. And we've been asking the question, what is it that makes creative people particularly happy or miserable or frustrated or fulfilled? And I've been working with the School of Psychology at Keele University in the UK to do formal research on that. If you get my newsletter or connect with me on social media, you probably know about this already. But if you haven't, or you'd like to come and find out more, come over to creativehappiness.net, where you'll find our research survey. And if that's finished by the time you listen, then where you can find out more information or still participate. That links very nicely to today's guest, who is a wonderfully positive and I think happy person. Not always, as you'll hear from this story, but I hope you find this as uplifting and positive as I do. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. Today, my guest is cellist Matthew Barley. Matthew is one of Britain's busiest solo cellists, but his career has been far from conventional. So he grew up with a strict, high-powered classical training, but now he describes his work as projects that connect people in different ways, blurring the boundaries that never really existed between genres and people. And that takes him round the world, working with musicians from many different traditions and backgrounds, such as a current project exploring Brazilian music, a lot of music education, jazz, improvisation has been a huge theme, and working with electronics. And he's collaborated, taught and performed, I guess, probably on most continents. Matthew, welcome to the creative Creative Life Show. You studied in the UK and Russia, and it looks as though you were on the road to being fairly traditional classical cellist. When was it clear to you that your path lay in a different direction? Um, I think that goes back to a moment when I was studying at the Guildhall School of Music. So my my full-time musical training happened in three institutions. First of all, Cheatham School of Music in Manchester, then the Guildhall School in London, and then two years postgraduate at the Moscow Conservatoire. But while I was at, uh, at the Guildhall, I had a very formative experience doing a course, a sort of extra module, which was called Music Communications and Performance Skills, snappy little title. And that... That uh, course took us into a prison, a primary school, a hospice for patients dying from cancer, terminal illnesses. And it made us think about what it meant to be a musician in the 20th century. Yes, this was in the last century. And it was absolutely amazing. I mean, it really was a life-changing experience for me in many ways. It introduced me to improvising, introduced me into lots of um, non-classical ways of music, educational contexts, community contexts. And uh, and I was in the middle of an incredible sort of long-term project in a primary school down in southeast London. And then I got a call from someone asking me to go and play chamber music with Rostropovich in Kstat. 
which was terribly exciting at that stage. Yeah, very high profile. Very high profile, but the week clashed with the final performance sharing with the primary school kids in Deptford. And I thought, I can't, A, I can't let them down, and B, I actually don't want to. Uh, I felt very, very committed to that work. And while I knew that uh, the, the week in Gestalt with, uh, with Rostropovich could be extraordinary, you know, life-changing in terms of introducing me to other musicians and stuff, I just thought I want to honor this commitment. So I, I went ahead with the primary school project. And that felt, I mean, at the time, it wasn't such a big deal, but it felt very important for me because it was a commitment to myself not to follow what somebody once described as the Dvorak Concerto Hilton Hotel career route. So I suppose that was probably a big turning point. Right. Oh, that's interesting because Deptford is literally about a mile from where I live. So it's always oh, a story it? near to home. Some lovely <laughs> primary schools there. Yes, absolutely. I really love that. That's that idea that we know ourselves through our actions and it's actually by you choosing one thing that shows the most important thing. Absolutely. What does it mean to you now, and well, probably a couple of decades on from that moment, to lead a creative life? I feel it's one of the biggest privileges that you can have, actually. I mean, a lot of people always speak about how lucky one is to be a musician because we make our living from doing something that we love. It's vocational. It's something that we believe in. It's something that we've carried from our childhood. But sort of even beyond that, I think there are there are various routes in the music profession that are more creative or less creative. And I've always I've always sort of turned left somehow instead of going straight on. I mean, another another seminal moment would have been when I got the position of uh, co-principal cello in the London Symphony Orchestra in, I think, 99. And I did have the distinction of being the shortest ever employee of the London Symphony Orchestra because I resigned after three weeks. But it was a time, to try and sum it up quickly, it was a time when I'd really put aside about two years for private practice. I got round about the age of early 30s, and I just thought, I've got to put in much more work on my own playing. And I steadily said no to a lot of freelance engagements in London in order to really concentrate on practicing. And then suddenly I found myself in a place where playing felt much, much better, but I didn't have any work anymore. And I thought, my goodness, I'm going to have to get a job. So I went to the LSO, auditioned for the co-principal. And by the time I'd finished the trial, they said, we'd love you to come and join. And I said, well, I'm not sure because other work is starting to pick up. And they said, well, why don't you accept the job and we'll see how it goes. And that seemed like a good deal. I accepted the job. And after three weeks, I was called up by the South Bank Centre who said, would you come and play a duo in the Royal Festival Hall with Sarod player Amjad Ali Khan. And Amjad is one of the greatest Indian musicians in the world. He's quite an extraordinary elder of the classical Indian music scene. I immediately knew that I had to accept that engagement, but it did clash with a world tour with the LSO and Pierre Boulez, I think for his 65th birthday or something. Um, so I ended up resigning for one concert in the Royal Festival Hall. I had no idea what that would lead to. But it was another moment of, I suppose, yes, one's actions describing what one really believed in. And it opened up the doors, or I think what you're describing, that creative life, where I really committed to projects which may not guarantee to bring in an income but were creatively exciting. I was I was deciding my own sort of creative destiny with the way my music projects went. 
There's so much I could ask you about that. And it's, I love right. the fact that you, well, you've given us two stories even before we get to our main one right. yes. <laughs> of creative challenge. So let's start there. I know like all my guests, I ask you to share a story of, of a particular time of creative challenge. So take us through that. So some years after that uh, LSO job, in fact, it was about 10 years later, it was 2008. So 10 years ago now. And as I'm always doing, I'm challenging myself more and more to improve my technique, improve my playing. And I went through a particularly tough three months really working on left-hand position and to try and get more stability. And it just wasn't working. And I was getting tighter and tighter in my left shoulder. And then I was skiing over New Year, 2007 to 2008. And I had what I thought at the time was a fairly innocuous fall onto my left side. I was skiing quite fast. Don't really know what happened. Suddenly, I was sliding down the mountain on my left side, not with any great pain. And I actually righted myself without stopping moving and just carried on skiing and thought, oh, that's annoying. That'll be a bit stiff this evening. As it turned out, by evening, I couldn't lift up my left arm at all. I went to the doctors the following morning. They did various scans and things and said, don't worry, you've just stretched a few ligaments. Take these painkillers. You'll be fine in a few days. So I thought, okay, no problem. Took the painkillers, the anti-inflammatories, and it got worse and worse and worse. I had two engagements in the States playing The Protecting Veil uh, by Taverner, my favorite, still my favorite cello concerto. And up until the day before the concert, I was desperately trying to convince myself that I could play through it. There wasn't a problem. Everything would be fine. And in the first concert, things went so badly that my left arm actually fell off the fingerboard twice during the concert. And at that point, I thought, oh, no, I really have got to admit something terrible is happening. And the next day, I was sent to the doctors. I had cortisone injections to try and sort things out. Second concert was just as bad. And after that, I realized this is a massive problem. I didn't know what to do. I went off to New York. I, I found some very high-powered acupuncturists who gave me a couple of sessions. It didn't solve anything. And really, things over the subsequent weeks, things went from bad to worse. I had to cancel engagements with the BBC Phil, with the Northern Symphonia, debuts with both of those orchestras. Bit by bit, I'd cancel sort of several concerts for a three-week period, hoped that it would get better, did all sorts of treatments. Nothing changed it. And skipping forward in the story, I had eventually consulted 16 doctors in six different countries, and absolutely nobody could fix it. Is, was that because nobody really knew what the problem was? Nobody really knew what the problem was, precisely that. And I found out later on exactly why. But at that point, and we're now having fallen just before New Year's Day, we're somewhere around April. I'm in enormous pain all the time. I can't sleep because every time I move, I wake myself up. I'm getting incredibly grumpy. And I'm having to deal with the reality that I will probably ne never play the cello again. That's how it felt at that point. That's how it felt. And that's what I was being told. Nobody could fix it. I was doing all sorts of different treatments. The worst moment of the whole process was one day I was on a hotel bed in Finland and I was curled up on the bed and I thought to myself, I really don't want to be alive. It was so appalling what I was going through. And of course, that's an irrational thought. I definitely did want to be alive, but I'll never forget that moment because I was just completely desperate. And I realized, I mean, I'd had all sorts of internal processes going on, but what I realized was my identity 
of myself as a human being was inextricably linked with my view of myself as a cellist and a musician. Therefore, if that part of me died, I felt like I was dying. It was a very, very painful process. My family was sick of me because I was grumpy all the time, which I'm normally not. And I really was losing hope. Because because as a musician, particularly, you've been doing this since childhood, haven't you? That's I, I've been doing it since the age of seven. And after three weeks of playing the cello, I announced to my mother that I was going to be a professional. And it's, it had never been a question for a second. That was my life from as soon as I started to play. Right. Until this moment. Until you- that moment. And then having got to that low point, I sort of picked myself up the next day and I thought, this is ridiculous. I have a beautiful life. I've got three amazing, healthy children. I'm very close to my wife. We have a wonderful relationship. She happens to be wealthy and successful. I don't need to work uh, in financial terms. I'd just done a very successful television program for BBC Two. I thought, I can do more television. I can do radio. I can teach. I can write arrangements. There are so many things I can do. And I just thought to myself, just pull yourself together look on the bright side and create a new life. So that that was the most challenging moment. And what fascinates me about this story is that that day or later that day or possibly the next day, I suddenly thought, and it just came completely out of the blue. I suddenly thought, what about Wimbledon? As in the tennis, I thought they have to know more about shoulders than anywhere on the planet. So as soon as I got back to England, I just called Wimbledon. I called the switchboard and asked to get through to the, there's a sort of, I don't know what the medical department or whatever it was and got through to their top shoulder surgeon. And I explained my situation and I said, can you help? And he was incredibly generous. He said, yeah, come on in in a couple of days and, uh, and I'll see what we can do. So I went in and I saw this chap and he examined all the x-rays and the scans and he ran them past his radiographer and, and he came back and he said, Rather disappointingly, he said, I think you need a really good physiotherapist, not an operation, which had been on the cards. And I said to him, look, I've seen three or four of the best physiotherapists in Europe. Do you really think that's going to change anything? And he said, well, I'm currently sitting on the Olympic Physiotherapy Committee or the Olympic Medical Committee, I think, with a young woman from Australia called Joanne Elphinstone. I think you should go and see her. So with absolutely no hope at all, I took myself off to Cardiff um, to see Joe, and I spent two and a half hours with her. And it was very clear from the very beginning that this was something completely different. The very first thing she said was, you have to understand that whatever created this problem on an emotional level, you will have to sort out the emotional level of it before we can heal your shoulder. Gosh, that's extraordinary. So you've gone to one of the top sports physios in the world, presumably, who has immediately gone in on the emotional level. Totally. So that immediately made me sit up. And then the next thing that made me sit up, she said, I've been studying your videos on YouTube and I've noticed several things about the way you play. And I thought, wow, this is a whole different level of attention. And then she proceeded to, with her fingertips, work all around my shoulder, across the top of my chest, upper spine, up to my, the back of my skull, um, creating what she called a sort of archaeological picture of what was going on there. And the crucial difference between her and all the other people who had seen me was that all the other people had looked at my shoulder 
as a shoulder that had just had a skiing accident. Joe looked at my shoulder also in that way, but also as a shoulder who, of someone who's been playing the cello for 30 years in a pretty bad way. So this immediately was the enormous difference. Despite the fact that she herself was not an expert in treating musicians. Well, she had had a lot of history of treating musicians. She worked a lot with students from the Royal Welsh College. She herself was a clarinet player. Ah, uh, okay. So that was an ex- expertise she had. She had a love of music and an understanding of performance. And so she found several things that were um, a result of the accident. She also found an awful lot of stuff that was a result of, of 30 years of playing the cello in the wrong way. Simple as that. And that came down to some purely technical things. And it also came down to the fact that um, I'd always suffered from concert nerves, like so many of us on stage. And the result of that was that I thrust my head forward in a sort of determined bid to just get the notes come what may. And that, that angle of my head was creating enormous problems with the left shoulder. So immediately we had a totally, totally different scenario in front of us to heal. And really, I I came away from that session thinking, this is going to work. And that was in June 2008. I started practicing the cello again, having not played for over a month. I started practicing the cello again for a minute a day at the beginning, slowly building up to two minutes, three minutes, and so on and so forth. And I think I had a very small performance at the Glastonbury Festival with a with a band with Graham Fitkin, Charles Hazelwood and some jazz musicians, which was my first toe in the water. And then the, the first real concert was a late night prom doing the quartet for the end of time. Oh, fairly major. <laughs> fairly major. I really didn't want to lose that one. And and yeah, basically, I'm well, I'm playing again. So it worked. What I find extraordinary, though, is that you go what I'm hearing, you get this this point where it looks as though you may never be able to play again. This has completely undermined everything about your identity. But then you go to Jo Elphinstone and she says, well, actually, you've got to completely change the way in which you do play. You can get this back. But changing your posture and your playing style, surely that's also another huge step. Absolutely massive. In retrospect, I wish that I had cancelled all my concerts for one more year and just sat at home and practiced. Whereas what I did, um, starting concertizing again and trying to change my technique at the same time was very hard. I think that probably prolonged the process by several years. But, you know, that's, that's what happened and I'm fine with that now. How did that feel when you had to start? It wasn't just a case of going back to what you could do because it was all healed again. But you had to start presumably taking it to bits and rebuilding it in a different way. I, I did, but I was just filled with excitement, to be honest. And, and I've often likened it to people who have a potentially life-threatening illness and they're cured. People like that will talk about the way that their days are filled with an extraordinary sense of being given a new life. And in, in cello terms, that would, that's what it was all like. You know, the whole process of putting myself back together again was underpinned by this feeling of this is just wonderful. I can play. Um, having faced never playing again, it all everything since that time in 10 years now has felt like a bonus. It's just felt wonderful. And has it changed the way you play or the way you, you express yourself or create sound? Completely. Abs- I mean, my playing now is, is just totally different from how it was. And I, I think in every respect, 
because while redoing my playing, I had to I had to rethink the way I performed the whole concert nerves thing. I did a huge amount of work there from hypnotherapy to visualizations to expressive dance meditation you name it i changed my technique by observing videos gaining much more physical awareness of the back of my body my back the back of my shoulders shoulder blades how they move you know i had to look into it all so carefully and then during that process i discovered some, something very interesting that i have a condition called ehlers danlos syndrome which is, have you come across that? Well, we have. And we had a wonderful guest, Monica Michelle, a few episodes ago, if you're a regular listener to this, where we talked quite a lot about Ilas Danlos. Well, you, you, you explain to us what it is, Matthew. <laughs> well, as far as I understand, I always forget whether it's too much or too little collagen or just something wrong little? with the collagen. Is it too little? Mm. So, and as I've understood it, the result of that is a couple of things. One, that you're extremely bendy. And two, that your proprioception is slightly impaired. So the proprioception is what tells you where your body is in space. So in other words, as you shift up and down a fingerboard on a cello that doesn't have frets, um, you need something to tell you where you are. And that's your proprioceptive sense. The way proprioception works, as I understand it, is that every time you move, your joints send a little message back to your brain, I've moved X amount of distance to the left or whatever it is. But if you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, that message network is impaired, presumably because of the lack of collagen somehow. So that explained an incredibly crucial thing that I had puzzled over for years. Why was it that whenever I do really big shifts up and down the cello, I basically nail them every time? But if I do very small shifts, that you know, even a semitone shift in first position, which is something you learn when you're eight years old or something, it was often really, really unreliable. And then I realized the difference between those was that with the big, difficult shifts, I practiced them tirelessly. With the easy shifts, I just take it for granted they should be fine, but they never were. And I realized that I it's basically a learning impairment. So now, whenever I prepare a piece, I have to go note by note, slowly, even shifts in first position, the tiniest, easiest things that a child could do, to in slow motion teach my arm and my brain exactly what that distance is and once it's done it's done it's secure it's like riding a bike but that informed a very very different way i had to prepare things i don't even know i can't say for sure whether i'm on the right track about that or the sort of detective work but what i can say for sure is that now i found the stability that i never had before that whole process that's fascinating. And now I don't know if you know this, but another thing that this kind of hypermobility is correlated with is anxiety. And you've just mentioned the the nerve, the stage nerves. How interesting. Oh, I'd I'd love to hear more about that. I mean it it, it reminds me of several things. I mean, first of all, you know, my anxiety was enormously heightened by this feeling of just not knowing where the notes were. It would just, I, I couldn't rely on the simplest things with my left hand. Every day I started playing the cello, it felt like I was starting from scratch. So that obviously increased my anxiety enormously. But maybe there are other levels that uh, that contributes to anxiety that I don't know about. It may well be that you have a predisposition to that, because that is one thing that ten tends to go with it. Another thing I found really fascinating about what you've told us there and your work now is the fact that is this performance anxiety, is this perfectionist level of detail. When I look at your performing life, 
I wouldn't guess that because it's full of collaboration of new projects. It's like, I'll go to Brazil and do a project with some Brazilian musicians and yes. I'll play at Gastonbury and I'll go and do a, a sort of a straight classical, you know, double concerto. Yes. Lots and lots of different things. That doesn't sound like the career of a sort of very detailed, perfectionist, anxious person. How does that all fit together? Um, I mean, I suppose one of the overriding things that has shaped my career is that if I hear some music that I fall in love with, I just want to play it. And that doesn't matter whether it's solo Bach or whether it's a jazz saxophonist or an Indian tabla player. I'll just somehow make it work through collaboration, improvising, arrangement, whatever it is. So I think just that fact on its own has led me to explore an enormous range of things. And the other thing is that since I was a teenager, I have realized that an enormous number of things in my life made me scared. But the one thing that I've never been scared of is fear itself. So I've never shied away from any situation that I've been scared of. And I've, I've really never turned things down because they've been scary, because everything was scary. Okay. Uh, I know, it's interesting, isn't it? I used to say to myself, I'm scared of absolutely everything in my life except fear. So it, it never held me back, I suppose, is, is, is the answer to that. And, well, I mean, it's a very classic book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And the clear message in uh, that is that actually we're, the thing we're afraid of is not being able to deal with the consequences of right. what might happen. And it sounds yes. for you is that it was the event you were scared of, not the consequences. I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that depends on whether you mean the immediate real-time consequences, you know, how you feel when you play a wrong note on stage or something, or the consequences of having played a bad concert afterwards. You know, the, the fear of those two things in prospect might be different. Hmm. Which one was the, the one that didn't matter? Oh, I didn't care about what happened afterwards at all. It was just the feeling of getting something wrong on stage that terrified me. How do you deal with that when you are going and doing such different styles of music and you're switching between them? I no longer feel really any difference between any different types of music. That, that's why I have that thing about, you know, dissolving boundaries that didn't really exist in the first place, because I just I just don't feel them now. I mean, if I'm playing with a tabla player, for me, if I play the cello, it's just playing the cello and it doesn't matter what I'm playing with. It's Bach, Stravinsky, Indian, improvisation, electronics. It's all the same because it's just, I'm a human being. My cello is an object which I use to express myself. And the, the different idioms are kind of irrelevant because it's just, it's a human being and, and, uh, and a tool, a piece of technology through which I express myself. And when I look at your bio, it looks as though you, you hear something and you go, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to go and follow that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I suppose in some ways I've been very, very impulsive like that. Um, I've never really thought too much actually about what I do. There's been no grand plan whatsoever. I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of completely immersed in whatever I happen to be doing at the moment. And I've been lucky also because I, I get phone calls from so many different directions asking me to do so many different things. And, and I just say yes to the ones that sound really fun and when, when my diary is clear. So there really is no grand plan there. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you decide which things to follow? Because I'm, I'm guessing there are a lot more things that inspire you than you have time for. Yes, I mean, again, there's, there's really no grand plan, Gina. It's terribly haphazard, actually. But I, I think life is like that. You know, my whole life has been an improvisation. So if I'm sitting playing the cello improvising, I don't 
have a process of decision making. I really live by that first idea, best idea. You know, I've, I've trained myself to whatever comes into my mind first to follow that immediately with my fingers, preferably so there's not even a time delay. It's like sound and thought and creative instinct are all in one single moment. And I think my my decisions about career have been the same. You know, if something comes along, I'm going, yep, I'll try that. Fantastic. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions. If if it seems like a really boring project or or if there's no money involved yet again, um, then I might say no. But really, it's just been very haphazard. What I'm hearing through this whole thing is a real depth of connection with your kind of inner voice. And I was noticing you, you, improvisation has been this huge theme in your work and also collaboration is actually it all about listening very acutely to what's going on, listening to your own voice, listening to the music, the other people and literally responding in the moment. I think that's probably right. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely love people. I, I really enjoy working with different people and I'm totally fascinated about what happens when a classical cellist meets a shakuhachi player from Japan. You know, what what is the sum total of those two things? And another very, very great inspiration for me has been the Beatles all my life. And and I the two things I love about the Beatles are one, that they were without question greater than the sum of their parts because individually they were not extraordinary. I mean, John and Paul both did some wonderful things and George, in fact, but together they were utterly extraordinary. So that was the first thing that I always loved to find that place where things are greater than the sum of their parts. And then the second thing was a, a, a fairly throwaway comment of George's on the anthology years ago. He said, the great thing about the Beatles the great thing about the Beatles was that we always said yes to everything. So when they were rehearsing and planning things, they just always said yes to each other. And I, I've often asked the question, you know, what other band in the world would say yes when the drummer came along and said, shall we write a song about a yellow submarine? It's <laughs> such a ridiculous idea. But they said yes, and look what happened. Brilliant. So yeah, those two things have really informed my decisions, saying saying yes to things and going for that place where things are greater than the sum of their parts. Because what's wonderful about that is that you remove your own agenda because you're looking for something that's out of reach and in, in not palpable. You know, what happens when two things come together and you're aiming for something that's sort of in the ether? What happens when those two things join? What's the most unlikely thing you said yes to that turned into that kind of amazing moment? Gosh, there have been so many over the years. I suppose one of the most unlikely ones was I, I met up with Tom Morris. Tom Morris was a director of the National Theatre and now he runs Bristol Old Vic. And Tom was a trustee of my group Between the Notes, which is a wonderful group that I ran for 12 years. And we did education work around the world, um, specializing really in creative collaborations with teenage musicians. We commissioned a lot of music and we improvised like crazy. And I was speaking to Tom and I said, I want to check out what improvisation means for actors, because I was aware that they had a, a much more alive tradition in the 20th century of improvising than classical musicians for, for whom improvisation really died around about 1900. And I wanted to explore ways of bringing that back. So he said, well, I think you should work with Neil Ashdown, who is an improvising comedian. So of course, immediately I just said yes. 
Now, what a cellist could do with an improvising comedian would not be clear to anyone. But actually, we had an extraordinary 10 days at Battersea Arts Centre where we really just grilled Neil about how do you do this? How do you approach that? What do you do on stage? We learned a huge amount from him. And we, we devised a show called Note to Tale, T-A-L-E, in which we found equivalents for all sorts of improvising forms in the acting world in musical form. And then we gave each one of these structures a name that related to a dish on a fictitious restaurant menu. We wrote this menu up on the back of the theatre wall and members of the audience chose items from the menu one by one for us to play. And I'll give you an example. We had a tricolore salad and a tricolore salad was when three musicians from the band would each play a short improvisation totally different from each other. So we had three very distinct improvisations, one after the other. While we were playing those improvisations, Neil, the actor, would introduce a character that he would make up on the spur of the moment. So after a time, we had three different characters with three musical accompaniments. And then after that, we had to develop this story together with these three characters meeting each other. And the aim was that by the time the story was wrapped up, the three musicians were playing in absolute musical unison. <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> okay. And we had a whole, we had a list of about 15 different um, food items on the menu. And each one of them related to a structure like that, where content was completely made up on the spur of the moment, but we knew something about the form of the improvisation. So that's probably one of the most unusual yeses I said. <laughs> have you ever said yes to something where you've come up going what was that about <laughs> i have yeah no definitely over the years and it's something that i welcome as well because i you know i realized a long time ago that if you're going to commit yourself to a creatively high-risk strategy you absolutely have to embrace failure there's just no two ways about it was that something your younger self the, the self-educated in the straight classical tradition would have found easy or not Definitely not. No. I mean, I remember the, the course I mentioned before, the music communications and performance skills was run by Peters Renshaw and Weigold. Peter Renshaw was an ex-head of the UD Menuhin School. Peter Weigold, a wonderful improviser. I'm sure you know Peter, maybe both of them. Peter Renshaw, when I met him once in my late 20s, he said he was describing me as a student. He said, you were the type of musician who would run and take a leap head first into a swimming pool and halfway down you'd have a look to see if there was any water there <laughs> <laughs> and, and it did always feel like that but that that did make classical music extremely frightening until i had really solidified my technique which is still happening by the sound of it which is still happening i mean you know just last night i was on the stage in the in the festival hall playing this double concerto with my wife victoria muller and you know i I suppose from about the age of 25 to 40, most of the work I did was around improvisation, education, collaboration, electronics, commissioning contemporary music. I did very little sort of straight classical. Um, even, you know, last night's 
a commission from Pascal Dussopin, I would I would class as straight classical. I did very little of that. And my solo career really started taking off around about the age of 40 at a time where I got myself a good manager and, and a recording company. And my playing was just getting better. So it's been a very strange career path because normally people solidify their classical credentials and then branch out. And I did sort of the opposite thing. So sitting there on stage, you know, that's the first time I've played with the LPO. And, you know, it should have been a utterly terrifying situation, but it, it wasn't. I had a wonderful time. And I do, I do feel now that, um, you know, I've got a solidity in my playing that, that backs me up and wasn't, wasn't too nervous, amazingly. Had a wonderful time. And you're old enough to enjoy it, perhaps. <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that's, that's one of the nicest things, yes. Just before we wrap up, I want to just take you back to, you started off by not conforming to classical music conventions, I think with your, your first piano teacher. Oh, that's right. Well, yeah, that was a funny thing. My piano career began and ended at the age of five. I had six piano lessons, after which my teacher called up my parents and said, your son is just not musical at all. You're wasting your time and money. And so my parents, not being musicians, thought, you know, fair enough, no big disaster. And, uh, and so that was the end of that. But I've, I've often wondered about that. I mean, actually, I'm incredibly grateful because I'm so much happier that I'm a cellist than if I was a pianist. But I also wonder, what did I pick up from the teacher during my lessons? How did my parents communicate that to me? What did I understand about the whole situation? Because... One of the things that I dealt with through my um, inquiry into my concert nerves was why do I have this feeling deep, deep, deep down in my bones that I'm just not good enough to be a musician? And, and I had some fascinating sessions of hypnotherapy where we went right back into those times. And I understood that I was given this message very early on that I wasn't good enough. And I had to sort of retrack and recalibrate that message. What do you think your teacher was observing or not observing? I mean, how do you feel about that experience? I, my guess is what the teacher was observing was boredom. I remember those lessons and, and they were just kind of strange. I remember I had to learn note names by playing words like cabbage and bag that had only the first seven letters of the alphabet in them. I thought it was very strange. So I don't know. I, I have no idea, really. But that, that would be one guess that maybe I was just bored. Right, right. I, I think that's an extraordinary story. I've, I, you first told that years ago. And I've told a lot of yeah. people <laughs> right. um, just yeah. how we shouldn't be judging children, particularly so, so early. So, Matthew, where can people connect with you? People connect me with, with me on Facebook. I have a professional page there via Twitter. Um, and also, I think there's a contact form on my website, matthewbarley.com. Right. And Twitter and your face, and Facebook, you are Matthew M. Barley, I think. Exactly. Yes. Right. Brilliant. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on and sharing those fantastic stories. Thank you, Joanna. <laughs> Pleasure talking to you. And thank you for listening. And just a reminder... Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or your podcast app. And that means you get every new episode of the Creative Life Show coming automatically onto your device. Or come over to creativelifeshow.com where you'll find this episode and all the links for it. And you can sign up there to get on the mailing list. Again, I'll tell you about every new episode as it happens. So have a wonderfully creative week. Go out and be inspired by Matthew's energy. And I'll see you back here soon. Bye.